Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A episode driven all and entirely 100% by you. Twitter, Reddit, and Facebook questions all pour in here. This show brought to you by the Justice Brothers celebrating 75 years of participation at the Indy 500. Cooper Tires, big supporter of what we do and the road to Indy, along with TorontoMotorsports.com. And also Bell Racing Helmets USA. As always, we're going to get your questions here momentarily. Mention up front a couple things going on as we look ahead to Sunday's 104th Indianapolis 500. And I have no idea why I'm talking to you in radio voice. Uh, sorry, it's been a really long day. Uh, we were dealing with temperatures 103, 104 degrees today, uh, heading to and from and being outside a little bit uh, with some of the things my wife and I were doing. And, yeah, we're a little worn out, plus one of those uh, things we had to do. Oh, it wasn't a good one. Yeah, we agreed today was one of the, it went so bad, it makes you appreciate the people who really give amazing, amazing support and service type days. So, yeah, we set the set the bar low today and it helped remind us how lucky we are most times all that stuff aside i'm going to tell you about a couple things going to try that are different actually one thing but we've got a couple things going on so got a lot of questions this week totally expected we always do between qualifying and the indianapolis 500 but i don't want to do a three-hour q a podcast i really don't uh, we're getting this started here at 7.05-ish p.m., so we're going to split. I'm going to do half of them right now, thanks to our man Tim Falkowitz for putting the questions together, and then I'm going to do the other half, I don't know, day or two or three, something like that. And frankly, I think we might start doing that as a whole. Maybe try a little thing here where we just go for an hour, hour 15 or so, and then we'll come back and do a part two and try and get the others through an hour, hour 15. I just want to give that a little bit of a whirl. So there's that. I'm going to try and do something here with our friends at torontomotorsports.com, Ryan Hunter Ray in his Racing for Cancer charity. Our man, Derek Koska at Toronto Motorsports, sent me a whole bunch of Robin Miller 2020 campaign stickers. Uh, buttons, I should say. The anyone but robin miller buttons and a bunch of stickers too and i have a bunch of things too old stickers and keychains from the justice brothers i'm going to try and pull these together and do a bit of a donation program so still working out the mechanism try and get you on social media with how it works but i think it's going to be some sort of donate a minimum of ten dollars or so to racing for cancer going to take that money obviously and put that towards more cancer research but I think that'll be the threshold. Donate minimum of $10, and we're going to send you a little care package of buttons, keychains, stickers, whatever. And I don't know what they would cost normally if you bought them all individually, but I'm guessing $30, $40 plus. So I'm going to try and do that. I want to have some sort of good charity fundraising effort for this year's 500, knowing that I can't be there, we had plans to do something a little bit bigger on the fundraising angle on site at the 500. So this is the workaround that we came up with. Thanks again to Derek Koska and TorontoMotorsports.com 
for sending a ton of great stuff. And I'm going to pile in as much nonsense as I have sitting here in the office as I can. Last item or two for you. Uh, we got some stories coming. One about there being no women at the Indianapolis 500. And I don't know why I just failed to pronounce Indianapolis. Actually, I think I might have gone the Unser style, Indianapolis. Uh, there's no women at the Indianapolis 500 this year, which isn't a surprise. Knew this was coming. I interviewed Catherine Legg Sunday morning, August what, 9th. So, uh, yeah, days before we even got on track. And then I spoke with Pippa Mann a couple hours later on that same Sunday, the 9th. And I've had those interviews sitting here, just frankly been waiting to get through qualifying. And I'm going to talk about some of this stuff here that it's a wee bit concerning knowing how's this not so much that there are no women in this year's 500. I dislike that. Obviously the concerning thing, which cat and Pippa raised independently on their own is there are no young women in the pipeline. And so when Jenna Guthrie broke the gender barrier, it was something like 13 years until the next woman participated in the Indy 500, that being Lynn St. James. And that wasn't awesome. So that was their concern, talking to Kat and Pippa, that, you know, of course, we'd love to be there. We'd love to be in the race. That's all obvious. But, you know, Kat's 40. Uh, Pippa's, what, 37. Both of them acknowledged, you know, we've had long careers. It's more a case of looking over their shoulders and realizing, where's the next one of us, two of us, five of us, 10? They aren't there on the road to Indy. So some deep insights from them. Spoke with Bud Denker from Penske Corporation today on this topic. Shared some quotes as well. Bud, just widely known as Roger's number two. Roger Penske's number two. Good guy. Also someone key, instrumental in the new race for equality and change program. So going to have that story coming here just put up a 16 part remembering john andretti podcast feature uh if you haven't had a chance to listen to some of those there are some gems and it's nothing to do with me it's just the folks that we spoke with and gave us some beautiful memories and recollections of john a lot of storytelling uh, about him that really really enjoyed so i'm hoping to get a chance to listen to those what else do we have uh spoke with isla agron here so we'll be putting up a podcast about Isla, who's hoping to get back on the road to Indy for sure. Uh, she's spotting this month for Dragon Speed. Uh, spoke with Ari Leyendijk on Friday. I think about a half hour, maybe a little bit longer. Did a pretty thorough dive into the 30th anniversary of his 1990 Indy 500 win. Uh, what else? I'm trying to look across all my notes here. Uh, yeah, got a bunch of other crap I need to write, too. Uh, so... All that's coming here. Got a video project I'm hoping to have done and out before the end of the week as well. Running crazy behind on everything, so sorry about that. Uh, final thing I'm going to mention, and I realize that uh, we're very fortunate on this podcast to have quite a few women who listen, and that means a lot to me, knowing that you know the sport can be a bit of a sausage fest, unfortunately. So... I'm going to apologize to all that 
hear this, uh, men or women or whatever you might be, because this is dumb boy humor. And I do feel the need to apologize for that because my brain is filled with it all day long. But this story came to me uh, last week. It was from a friend on pit lane. He's the one who did it. And it's the funniest thing I've heard in I don't know how long. So, again, I apologize. It's a little bit crude, but uh, to quote our man Juan Montoya, it is what it is. So, friend of mine on the timing stand with his team noticed that someone he recognized from one of the teams he used to work for was peeking around the corner. This is on the backside of pit lane, the cold side of pit lane, happened to notice that the person who's routinely hired by one of his former employers would have known that person. This person would have done the same job while he was there that gets hired to go up and down pit lane with their camera and photograph other people's cars, in particular wing settings, trying to see if you can parse anything out on suspension settings and whatnot. Spy photographer used each year at Indianapolis by this particular team that my friend used to work for, happened to notice that this spy photographer was indeed trying to sneak around and not get noticed, but take some photos of his car. And I can tell you that his car was very competitive. Uh, We can say that it was in the Fast 9, and the team that was trying to take the photos uh, weren't so much in the Fast 9. So you could see where there might be value in taking some spy shots of a highly competitive car hoping that uh, you might be able to crib some information from it. Well, as I mentioned, the boy part and sausage fest, uh, my friend happened to notice that this person was taking spy photos, and we have to assume this would only be done because there were no fans there, no anyone there. Uh, He stepped right in front of the line of the person's camera, uh, undid his pants and might have shown a particular part of his anatomy to the photographer who was snapping away. Um, <laughs> ah, so I could describe it in, uh, uh, yeah, more colorful terms, but I won't. Um, I can just tell you this, the team that is paying the spy photographer, I don't know if they knew, I don't know if they looked, I don't know if it got deleted before the images were handed off, but they paid for a bleep pick uh, that was inserted in there by a gentleman trying to do a bit of counter photo espionage and left that team with an image that I'll tell you what, it certainly wasn't of a race car part, so... That, uh, yeah, exposing oneself on pit lane uh, to uh, divert the efforts of a spy photographer. Now, that ranks as one of my absolute favorite tales from the Indy 500, and it just happened a couple of days ago. So, uh, (laughs) I'm sorry. I know it's totally dumb boy humor, but that kind of thing just kills me. 
and knowing obviously i'm not mentioning who it is but knowing who did it and the players involved oh oh this is a good one this is going to go in someone's autobiography at some point in time because yeah someone blew their top for sure so all right that's that's all i got for you here to open the show we're going to jump into your questions here once again thank you to the justice brothers cooper tires torontomotorsports.com bell racing helmets usa got a little bit of music bed here for us and we're going to get going with our very first question which comes from Jeremiah Morell, come on down. You're the first questioner on the Week at IndyCar, listener Q&A, whatever, for Indy 500 Week. Got a couple questions here from folks about Honda, Chevy, and Chevy and Honda. Going to kick off with our pal Jeremiah Morell, who I think was camping last weekend, and sent me a photo of a rattlesnake. So, there you go. Says the story of the weekend seemed to be the separation between Honda and Chevrolet in qualifying speeds. The advantage seems to be cyclical. Did Honda teams have any idea they were going to be a class alone this time? Also closes with, and how ironic is it that this is the year that Spam is formed and becomes a Chevrolet team? Completely missing the top nine? Question mark. Yeah, uh, for those who are James Hinchcliffe fans and are still a little grumpy feeling that he got done dirty, uh, yeah, you might have rejoiced with how the Fast 9 went down. Um, I mean, look, a little comeuppance is always fun. You don't want to see a team struggle, though. Uh, Aero McLaren, SP... They're going places. The kids that are driving for them uh, are certainly ridiculously talented. And yeah, I just, I want to see them succeed like I do every team, but you know, they're trying to do something new. I love their investment in youth. That's the thing that I, I truly am sticking on here. So yeah, uh, for just talking any 500. Yeah, certainly this wasn't the exact way they probably hoped it would go. Fernando, you know, I, I don't know if an apology is due. I forget exactly who asked. Uh, is there any concern about Fernando not doing much racing? And will that be a deterrence or detriment or something? And I said, no, can't see it. Eh, probably was wrong about that one. I don't know. Uh, absolutely could be. After watching him make a fairly basic mistake and then crash, that's what stood out to me that, well, granted, he'd already done many, many laps by that point. Uh, in practice it's not like he had just you know two or three laps in uh got too low got up on the curb separating the uh the apron from the grass and then chucked the car out into the wall i mean he'd done a lot of laps but still that just lack of precision there made me think you know what Pruitt, you might have been totally wrong there so uh whomever it was that asked that question and i said no i don't think that's the case Send me a note on social media and just tell me I'm an idiot, among the other ones that tell me I'm an idiot. Because, uh, yeah, I think I got that one totally wrong. Back to the primary question here from Jeremiah. Cyclical, yeah, you could say that for sure. The, hey, we didn't win the Indy 500, and that really pisses us off thing. It's a very powerful motivator for both brands. Uh, however many brands we end up having, they're all going to be feeling the sting, the ones that don't win, and tend to put in more resources, resources being money, 
and more hours and more everything to try and come up with whatever magical piece they might use or pieces or engine mapping or otherwise that help give them an advantage. I did not hear a thing from any of the Honda teams leading into the 500 opening day of practice, fast Friday, anything that led them to believe, oh, we're going to smoke the opposition. What you tend to hear every year is, oh, cannot wait to get going to then get an idea where we stand. And that's, that's the thing we can't overlook here. Of course, we have whatever number of races that have taken place before the 500. Maybe that'll give you a little bit of a clue of, Oh, they've got a torque advantage here. Or they've got a peak power advantage there between the brands. Enough work goes into the Indy 500, though, uh, where you just have to get on track to get a feel for where you're at. And then knowing that uh, we tend to get fresh motors to play along here once we get into the finer aspects of the month of May. I know we're in August. Um, then you really see what kind of boost is coming. So, you know, uh, we'll see. Would not count out Chevrolet. Would never count out Chevrolet. They are nasty when it comes to a competitive edge, streak, sensibility. We are, of course, we will celebrate the good work of whichever brand. Through Sunday, (laughs) there's no doubt that Honda gets the big bouquet of roses and a kiss on the cheek and just everything. How impressive was that? Eight of the fastest nine qualifying cars were theirs. That's amazing. Rarely do we see a routing of one brand to the other like that. Uh, I will never count out Chevrolet, though. Uh, They just, they're too good. So if Honda ends up having an advantage that holds in traffic and race day and all that kind of stuff, knowing that we did see in that final practice session on Sunday, Honda's come out first and second and have a little bit of an edge there. You know, uh, it's not like I don't want Honda to win or anyone to win or lose, but I just hope it's competitive. I'm probably the millionth IndyCar fan to have said that. Just want it to be a competitive race. So I'm pulling for you, Team Chevy, to level that playing field and give us a massively unpredictable 500. Let's go to Robbie Berggren sticking on the Honda angle. Marshall, my theory on how Honda was so much faster is this. Seems to me the majority of their advantage was on lap one. So was Honda really taking more risk on knock reduction while the engine and air charge was a bit cooler for a lap than switching to a less aggressive spark mat for the remaining three? Do you think I'm on the right track? Interesting once again, I would not put this down to being the thing. Uh, Keep in mind that one of the topics that came out and we had to correct a little bit was, oh, the Hondas are all over the place. They start off with some really big speed and then it tapers off. And yeah, but the Chevys, on the other hand, see, they're super consistent. Then Renus went out for his run on Saturday and at least among the fastest cars out there, he had the biggest variance from lap one to lap four. Just whatever his lap one was to lap four, I don't have it in front of me, but looking at it at the time, I recall like, no, that's actually a pretty big gap. Then I think Dixon went out and went to first or something like that. And, you know, his gap, 
if Renus's was one mile an hour or so from lap one, uh, by the time he got to the final lap, maybe Dixon's was 1.2. But eh, here's the thing. For those that don't have peak scary qualifying speed, and I know that's just a difference of a mile an hour or two, you tend to get something that's a little bit closer, right? So you're not as fast as the other cars. Therefore, your opening lap is a bit lower. Provided the car is not handling poorly, Robbie, the rest of your laps would be pretty darn close because you're incapable of achieving the same peak. We had Hondas that had crazy peak speed. We had others that did not. Uh, It was kind of the full gamut. Among the Chevys, Renus was really the only one who went out there Saturday and did a holy cow kind of speed. On Sunday again, since he was the only one to make it in, another holy cow, crazy speed kind of thing. So I, I wouldn't put this down to some sort of mapping, tuning, spark, plus, minus, knock reduction, whatever strategy on lap one. Uh, to let them bank that and then things taper down afterwards would say we're just talking about handling being imperfect on most cars teams not having a full grasp of the aero screen and the changes to the car's performance it's handling and tire degradation uh, as much as they would like and so as a result we didn't have a ton of drivers especially, again, fastest ones who just said, oh, car's perfect. It was just on rails the whole time. Really, it didn't seem to matter which team in the Fast 9. For the most part, they were either unhappy, semi-satisfied, or kind of happy, but not all the way. And would just say that's more a byproduct, Robbie, of the lack of practice time. And so you combine all those things, And you don't have four laps of great consistency for many of the fastest cars, certainly for the ones that were slower. Again, uh, if you're really good in the 229.5 range and you have no hope of running laps in 232, 231, well, you're going to kind of hover in that 230-ish to 229.5 range or whatever it might be and have a pretty narrow band of qualifying. So, yeah. Uh, for those who could get that big peak, there was still some uh, some fall-off that was going to happen in the performance of the car, and they did their best to tune from there. Uh, you also mentioned you're praying for my wife to kick cancers behind. Well, you know what, brother? I join you in those prayers uh, every day. Uh, two more here on the disparity that we had. Lance Snyder, our uh, minister of mirth, Says, I'm not sure we could say Chevys were even out to lunch. Looks like they hadn't had breakfast yet. Uh, Did they work more on drivability in the race versus outright power for qualifying, or are they super-duper hosed? Yeah, again, I don't think super-duper hosed. Penske, obviously, leading light for Chevrolet. They massively struggled, telling you things you already know. If we're talking Fast 9, Elio was able to put up a very competitive lap as we got towards the end of Sunday's practice session. I think we had something like four Chevys in the top 10 at the end of that practice session. So that made me feel a lot better. 
Granted, the top two were not only Hondas, but a fair bit ahead of everyone else, but we'll see. I, I think we're going to have, hopefully, a more competitive race, but another quick thing to mention here. So if a manufacturer does have a tiny bit of a horsepower advantage and they feel like there's reliability to match, you can often see them say, well, cool, why don't we burn some of that horsepower? Why don't we expend a tiny bit of that horsepower advantage and recommend if you wanted to, you could use a little bit more downforce. More downforce comes with higher fuel consumption. So it's not kind of a, oh, you got 50 extra horsepower, bolt on a ton of extra downforce. You're going to win the race by a mile because the thing's going to be glued everywhere, perfect in traffic, so on and so forth. Yeah, and you're also going to be doing an extra couple of stops and lose the race. So, you know, do we see that happen sometimes where you might go with tiny bit of extra downforce because you know you can use it without hurting yourself? competitively at least race wise something some teams will think about maybe but yeah uh, i just really hope that the uh the chevy ponies are there so we have a proper fight i know that last year listening to i believe alexander rossi's radio transmissions during the race he seemed fairly convinced that it was a chevy year and there wasn't a whole lot he was going to be able to do. We saw that happen on track as well. I mean, he yeah, he was able to get by Pagano, but Pagano came back pretty quickly, and uh, Alexander didn't have too much to respond. But we'll have to see, man. Uh, it's always the thing that you can't answer. Uh, you got to see it before you know. Uh, final question here on this topic comes from Ed Joris. And, Ed, I'm going to drink some coffee here. It says, Marshall, did I hear it right that the Chevys were suffering from heat soak? They required a long wait time after each run. Well, the Hondas were seemingly unaffected. Don't know what you heard, Ed, because uh, I wasn't there uh, when you heard it. But I can tell you that, no, um, cooling down is definitely needed, especially when you have high ambient temperatures as were experienced. So, yeah, there is a thing, though, about the Chevys at Indy in particular that have always been known to run hot uh, in this 2012-plus era. But I didn't. He, I haven't heard anything to lead me to believe that there was some sort of quote problem with the bow ties that required extra cooling before they would be ready to go out for another run. Um, and the Hondas were just good to go at all times. Uh, let's go to our pal Chapin Seventeen. Says, "Hey Marshall, could part of the reason why Andretti have been slightly off this year up to the five hundred be due to the team focusing more on the five hundred during the off season?" Goes on to say, last year, Andretti qualified 9th, 10th, 11th, 22nd, and 28th, which is a way off compared to where they qualified this year. So obviously, there was a big improvement made for the 500, but for the rest of the season, they haven't been as good as they were last year. It's possible. It would surprise me, though. This is something that smaller teams tend to do. Smaller meaning we don't have as much money to be fully competitive. The Indy 500's the big deal. So knowing that we have a modest, comparatively modest amount of money to spend on our off-season R&D engineering programs, we're going to just throw it behind the Indy 500? Yeah, I've heard about many teams doing, you know, directly from them saying, oh yeah, no, I mean, we, we know we don't have the money to play with Penske or whomever, you know, in road and street course development, so we're going to do our best there, but only thing we could do 
let's put it all behind the 500. It would really surprise me if the Andretti team tilted their off-season R&D so heavily that it benefited them at the 500 but took away from what they were planning for, which was the 16 other races on the calendar. So naturally, we know the Indy 500 is the big thing to get and win. It's the most valuable thing, of course, but this is a team that is thinking championships. This is a team that has not won a championship for a long time. Indy 500 wins? Yes, they have been good there. Very good. Uh, The last decade, very, very good. It would surprise me if this were the case. Now, granted, while they have not been pole-winning, threatening you for the win so far in road and street courses this year, you know, they've certainly been there, thereabouts at times. They've they've been strong, just not front-running, leading, winning, kicking butt strong. I think this might just be a case where the R&D work they did for the 500 really paid off and was spot on. And as we often have with a big team like Andretti with a serious budget for these kinds of things, they missed slightly on their road and street course R&D. And they've done it before. They've had years where they just, just you know, top, top shelf on road and street courses. So... Like we're talking about Honda and Chevy, this can be cyclical as well. So would be really surprised if this is just a case of them saying, well, we're putting three quarters or 60% or whatever the number it might be of our R&D money towards Indy, potentially disadvantaging ourselves where we're racing you know, 90 plus percent of the time during the year that would strike me as a very non-Andretti approach. Uh, Let's go to two questions. Tom Anderson, you crack it open. Any explanation how Renus VK was the only Chevy to find speed in qualifying? Uh, No. (laughs) Other than the kid is super good. Uh, I've been saying that since, I've been saying that for a, a while, back since his Indy Lights days, but... This is the Renus VK I expected us to see. Uh, This kid is super good, super aggressive. Get on top of that steering wheel and hold on like you wouldn't believe. This kid's just phenomenally talented. What struck me oddest of all, if that's even a good grammar usage, Tom, was how Renus was not just the fastest Chevrolet, not just faster than all the Team Penske cars, but the clear, by a big old margin, leader within his own Ed Carpenter racing team. We naturally put Ed on pole position within ECR when it comes to the Indy 500. Of all the, whomever's driving there, I don't care. You would expect Ed to be the clear guy that's going to lead the team into the Fast 9, if not go get the pole. The fact that That was not even a remote possibility that he was so not in the Fast 9 game. Huge shock. Uh, Connor Daly as well. He'd been so quick Wednesday, Thursday, Friday a bit. Himself with his new race engineer, Cole Pern. That was another surprise. How, of the three, Renus was the one who was just on a different 
planet. I was about to say Ed was in outer space, but that had been a really bad pun. Uh, that to me was the surprise. Not that Renus was fast. The fact that he was the clear leader within Ed Carpenter racing in qualifying trim. Let's go to Daniel Kincaid, who says, was VK an outlier in terms of Chevy performance who got lucky with the time he went out on Saturday? It'd be really dumb to not say, yeah, of course. His draw time, where he was in the draw, qualifying draw, went out. It absolutely helped, played a role yeah, but we got to qualify that too, right, Daniel? Marco Andretti didn't go out first. I mean, we all, most of us thought, oh, man, poor kid. Been so quick all week long and just got murdered on the draw. He's going out late. It's going to be the heat of the day. Oh, man, poor kid. And no, <laughs> went out in the heat of the day, went to P1 on Saturday and was the man and then held on to it. So I think Renus his time was or his speed was certainly a byproduct of advantageous ambient conditions but we did see others go out in the heat of the day and not only go fastest in marco's case uh his his boss and teammate ed carpenter what i think he'd qualified something like 20th and went out and ran again and i think was 13th 14th 15th something like that i think got knocked back a little bit as some more runs went on but you know, folks showed that they could go out in the afternoon and do some pretty interesting things. So, uh, I wouldn't put it all down to the morning, but it certainly didn't hurt. Uh, Mike Jablo, MP, continued best wishes for you and Chabrell. Thanks. Y'all are like just sending a lot of beautiful stuff um, about the old Pruitt family this week. Thank you. Says, could you elaborate on the keystroke error that Dixon's car encountered during 8500 practice last week? So, if I was better at doing this. Mike, which I'm not, and I appreciate all of you for understanding that, uh, would have seen your question and reached out to try and get a deeper, deeper explanation for you. I failed to do that. I do know that just in terms of values, you know, there are straightforward values of, um, you know, this is on, this is off. So it's a really basic thing I just said, but I kind of sort of think that this was just a case of a wrong number being in the wrong place. So I will try and get a better -er answer here, but I think we're kind of somewhere in the park there. All right, we're going to get to Colin Young. Hey, Colin, I think I have an email from you or something from you that might be two months old that I haven't responded to. And some of you, I have stuff that's probably similar vintage, and I apologize, truly apologize. I do a very bad job of responding in a timely manner to non-work-related things. Uh, It's kind of work or my wife, one of the two, and I've been trash at uh, getting back to folks on some things. So uh, please accept my genuine apologies, Colin. Uh, You say, why do drivers move so far away from the wall in the straights at Indy? I would assume you mean the right side wall. Does I guess air being displaced, maybe bouncing off the wall and upsetting the car, but doesn't that slow you down? Also adds, is the greater lap distance offset by the car not getting that resistance off the wall? Well, the reason for that, this is probably one of the most common Indy 500 questions that get asked every year. It's one of resistance 
but not aero resistance, mechanical resistance. So we know that the right side of the cars have tires that are bigger than the left side, so there's stagger put into them. There's also alignment settings in the car, Colin, that make the car want to naturally turn left. And this is all absolutely necessary at the speeds they're going. You fire into turn one or turn three at 237 miles an hour. You don't want your hands and cranking on the steering wheel hard and fast. A lot of force being the thing that gets the car to turn. So through tire stagger and through alignment, chassis alignment settings, suspension alignment, the cars are created in a fashion for the 500, all ovals, but the 500 particularly, to naturally want to turn left and turn left quickly. So because of that, as we see the cars come off of turn four, usually the one that stands out most uh drivers let the car just take its head and go to the left and so that's why you get this rather interesting line of cars coming out of turn four and they just keep turning (laughs) and heading towards the uh, pit wall and obviously the driver's intercede at some point and put a little bit of pressure on the steering wheel to keep that from going all the way into the wall And then they turn to the right, get out close to the wall, and then turn into turn one. Well, this is all to avoid scrub. This is all to avoid tire scrub, uh, mechanical resistance. So that is why you see this. Coming out of turn four and coming out of turn two, we have a situation where the car wants to go left naturally. And since drivers are just being as precise and giving the steering wheel the lightest touch possible to eliminate any and all scrub, just resistance, added resistance between the tires and the road. This is why they let the cars have their head, go to the left as they do naturally, just let it happen peacefully. And then as the car gets a little bit closer to the inside pit wall, they'll again get on the steering wheel and give a little bit, little bit of resistance, but nothing crazy. Obviously, during the race, if you've got two or three cars stacked on top of each other and passing, well, you're not going to let the thing have its head and go to the left. But, uh, yeah, if a driver were to come out of turn four and then just hold the steering wheel to the right, uh, that would indeed slow that driver down, going down the entire length of the front straight because you're creating friction, added friction, resistance, between the tires and the ground that you don't want. So that's the reason. I'm going to take another sip of coffee because my voice is getting a little ratty. Got a question here from Reddit. Uh, Dinkleberry Weenus Pong. Uh, And it looks like someone had some fun ordering the letters in that screen name. Any word on how Illinois' new COVID restrictions might impact Gateway? Robin Miller wrote about that today. Uh, Our friends at Gateway say there's nothing limiting open-air events, and their goal of having 20% crowd uh, is all going forward. So as of today, (laughs) the 17th of August, going to Gateway as a fan is an option, provided you are one of the folks that gets uh, the reduced allotment of 
Tickets. All right, we're going to get down to where are we going? Yeah, not too much more to go. I like this, y'all. Hopefully, this uh, slightly shorter week in IndyCar when we've got a whole bunch of questions, routine. Yeah, I'm going to try and uh, try and do more of this. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to Ed Joris. It says, Friday, Ted Klaus of Honda Performance Development said, probably the biggest emphasis for both sides since last year was teams stay focused on what only teams can do. HBD and Honda will stay focused on uh, those things that only Honda can do. Uh, Ed then says, this implies that HBD had been researching and advising on other things, setup, arrow, etc. If so, was this uh, re-entrenchment HBD's idea or the teams or mutual? The interpretation on this, Ed, from Ted was with this covid world we live in where we're not able to be as firmly entrenched together we're just going to have to focus on what we do and try and give you the best product and you all focus on what you do and get the most out of that and yeah uh hpd is known has been known i've spoken about this for many many years they are well known or being active participants in their partner teams. So every manufacturer is going to help or offer some assistance or suggestions uh, on Aero, you name it. Uh, they invest a lot of money as well because this is truly a manufacturer battle. I know that both brands lease engines that there's money changing hands for most teams. This isn't just a sole supply thing. One manufacturer, yeah, cool, whatever, do your own thing. In that instance, I think there'd be a lot less money spent by Team Chevy and Honda Performance Development. But since there is true competition between those two brands, you don't want to have things entirely left up to your teams. Meaning, well, hey, hopefully you guys figure stuff out. Uh, we're going to try and give you good motor, but hey, if y'all kind of screw up, well, that sinks our ship too. Uh, it's not so much the way they do things. So always been helped with setup, aero, you name it, wind tunnel, CFD, driver in the loop, uh, testing, simulators. There's been all those things to whatever degree for years and years and years. At least for what I took away from ted's note on this specific topic ed uh it's a case of hey we can't really be as embedded with you as we like so during this compromised covid time we are just gonna have to really you know focus on what we are able to you do that on your end as well we'll try and share as much information as we can but uh the families are a little bit separated more than usual and I know more of Ted's fascination here that he really is, he's keen on it. And I don't know if all this made it into whatever I've written with Ted recently, but with COVID, with the adjustments that everyone's had to make, he's been a, a key spotter of the differences and changes. Oh, well, we've had to do things differently. We could either just focus on that and, oh, well, these are the compromises and just get through it, or... We could do those things, do our stuff as we do, and you do yours as teams, and we'll try and excel as best we can. But let's also look at the differences. 
since we have to do things differently in so many ways, let's look at how we do things differently. And if anything's anything pops out or multiple things jump out, I was like, Oh, well, since we have to adapt and modify our practices, maybe there's some things we were missing before when we didn't, maybe there's some things we carry forward that will benefit us competitively. So just interesting. And I know Ted's really keen on that. So, We'll see if I can drill deeper with that on Ted next time we speak. Uh, Duncan, Idaho. 11. I almost forgot the 11. I don't know what the 11 means in the Idaho part, Duncan. I don't think your last name's Idaho, but it could be. Um, You might have to tell me what Duncan, Idaho, 11, uh, what all that means. Uh, I saw your question, and I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to hope that my brain figures it out. So it's probably not a you thing. It's most likely a me thing. I'm not totally sure what you're asking here, but I'm going to give it another try. It says, with the economics as they are, could we see some silly season movement over the next few years around more rides at more teams being split between multiple drivers over the season? Silly season movement over the next few years. So there's a time frame. More seats over those years. More teams being split among. I think what you're asking, and probably all of you are like, idiot, it's obvious, but okay. Uh, I think what you're asking is, could we see more of the AJ Foyt Racing number 14 Chevy scenario? Where if everything goes according to plan this year, Tony Kanon, Dalton Kellett, and Sebastian Bourdais will all drive the same car. Do I think we could see more of that? I do. I really do. I only know of the economics getting less economical in the coming years. And not because IndyCar is doing anything bad, but if they stick to their plans to have a new motor come out in less than 18 months and new chassis or major portions of a chassis sometime around that, maybe, I don't know, uh, 30 months from now, whatever. These are all things that on top of your operating budget and paying your drivers and all the other things, yeah, uh, there's going to be some major cash outlay to update to the new stuff. So I am unaware of more drivers walking around with a whole bunch of money waiting to pay to drive indie cars right now. And I'm also unaware of huge, significant pay for my whole season of racing type sponsors, just knocking down the doors to get in at the moment beyond what we have, obviously. So yeah, I think the, Hey, the budget is 6 million for the year and I've got two drivers who can split it or three that can go in three ways or four. I think that could be a thing uh, with more teams. And I don't want to say, I hope not as in, I don't want more drivers here. The hope I would believe is there just be more entries because there's more sponsorship coming in to pay for a full ride, hire a driver or a more drivers with a full budget to offer. But could I see there being more of a rideshare scenario? I absolutely could. 
Uh, let's get down to a couple of final questions from y'all here. James Lau, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, James. If not, uh, send me an email or a tweet or a whatever. And first, as always, tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, but then please give me some phonetic help. Uh, my nickname of my many nicknames uh, of the last name assassin. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it says, hey, MP, really enjoying your video recaps with Robin this weekend. Curious about your face covering. Says I'm a lifelong Mazda rotary fanatic. I own a 1993 Mazda RX-7. So curious how you picked a mask with the colors of the mighty Mazda 787B that won Le Mans. Says thanks and stay healthy, you and your wife. Well, you got me there, James. Uh, I'm a human being and I love racing, which automatically equates to the livery on the 1991 24-hour of Le Mans winning Mazda 787B. It's kind of the bestest thing. So the moment that I saw that mask become available, uh, I snapped up a couple. And so, yeah, uh, having watched the significant portions of the 91 24 hours of Le Mans and seeing the win happen, uh, I guess there's also that little link as well of just, you know, uh, seeing it and loving it and, yeah, that car was so cool. Uh, so, so cool. So, yeah, that's the simple answer there. And my wife and I own a Mazda. Uh, so we're, you know, on the hashtag me personally level, big fans of the brand. And we've owned two Mazdas so far. One of them got totaled, and then we replaced it with something better. And, yeah, so plus I've also done a lot of work uh, with Mazda over the years at what would have taken place last weekend, if not for the Corolla virus, the Rolex Monterey Motorsports reunion. So Mazda usually has a big display with a 787B, 767, uh, you name it. Uh, done a lot of in-car video, just tons with, uh, yeah, that exact chassis, that exact livery many, many times for more than a decade. So fortunate to have, uh, Seen it win, loved it then, and then had a chance to put my hands on it and do a lot of in-car video, audio, whatever, at the uh, the vintage race each year in Monterey. So pretty lucky guy in that regard. Super easy choice to go with it. Uh, here's a question, and I thank you for throwing it in, Howard. Uh, to Marshall, if you had a dollar for every message and comment posted to you and your guests, sadly, on Racer and social media this past week, that stated either, quote, why are you wearing that mask indoors or take that mask off? How much money would you have now? Uh, so it's good on yourself and Robin Miller and Katie Hargett. Thanks again to Katie. Who's just quadruple awesome for helping me out, uh, on the end of day, there, uh, video on Thursday, uh, for just applying a little common sense, doing the correct and most simple of basic public health precautions in regards to you and Mrs. P. Well, thank you, Howard. I just shared with my wife that, you know, I feel bad because I do make a really considered effort to talk to everyone on this show, not just the Week in IndyCar Q&A, but just my podcast in general, like friends and family, invite you all into our world. To obviously, don't tell you everything that's going on at home, but just try and treat this as more of a, a family gathering and had some person just deciding, well, you know, we need to take you to task uh, on your on your Facebook page here uh, for it as well. 
And I just deleted the guy's comment because everything I wanted to say in response was not very Christian or flattering. But it did come back to some form of, I really, I feel bad because I try and welcome and be kind of family feel here. I guess that comes with some folks not realizing where they really should not stick their nose in or get into someone else's business at home. So, yeah, uh, I don't know what to say, Howard. It saddens me massively. Let's go to J.J. Gertler, another pal. Not quite the Minister of Mirth, the uh, Gentleman of Guffaws. That's who you are, J.J. Gertler. Says, I'm about to be driving from D.C. to Arizona and back. That sounds like some form of court-mandated punishment, by the way, J.J. Uh, So that means at least 16 hours of time in the car. That will allow a deep dive into the Marshall Prude archives. At least two questions. Are there particular episodes from years ago that still stand out in memory as can't miss? Uh, And also, what if any other racing podcasts are worth listening to and won't cause me to doze off on the Interstate 40? All right. So I'm going to do this. As for... Stuff that I've posted, I don't know, man. Um, I can't tell you what's good or not good because I make it. So, you know, I'm invested in all of it. And while I know that there are certainly some that are better than others, I don't know, man. Uh, It's kind of like asking the chef what their favorite meal happens to be. Like, I don't know. I make it and then I push it out and you take it. So hopefully some other folks can give you some insights here, JJ. I don't really taste a lot of it, if that's a weird uh parallel i apologize uh as for other racing podcasts so the super obvious one is dinner with racers right a lot of great stuff there if you haven't been through their catalog there's a lot of great stuff i was fortunate and thankful to be invited on for season one so i'm a dinner with racers og y'all i have opened up my podcast application it's weird to say application we all just say apps my podcast application on my telecommunication device, also known as my iPhone. And here are some of the answers. So you said racing podcasts. Well, guess what? It's my show, so I'm just going to mention a bunch of things, Mr. Gentleman of Guffaw. Uh, Here are things that I subscribe to on the racing side, and then I'm going to mention some other things not on the racing side because there you go. I don't subscribe to many racing podcasts. Why? Because I don't like them and I'm really competitive and I just couldn't listen. No, not at all. I used to listen to bazillions of hours of podcasts. Want to know when I did that? Prior to starting my own. (laughs) Funny how doing this for however many hours per week eats up a lot of my free time. So, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you the one that I really love the most these days and for a little while now. Uh, my man, Tom Clarkson, who I don't know well, but I like a lot. And in the interactions we've had, I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Uh, spent probably an hour plus talking with him on pit lane last year at Indianapolis on the, uh, what, the April 28th or whatever it was, open test. Uh, standing down there with the McLaren racing team, he was there with them. And uh, I'll just tell you, I didn't know who he was at the time. Knew the name but didn't uh, fully connect the face and the voice. And so he and I spent maybe an hour. And uh, afterwards, uh, one of my, I think Tim Bampton 
their head of communications like, oh, hey, yeah, oh, it was good to see you and Tom talking. And I'm like, yeah. And they walked away. No joke. I went back to the media center because I didn't want to admit I didn't know who he was. So that's total stupidity and vanity on my part. Uh, went to the media center, pulled up the McLaren Racing website, went to the kind of corporate officers board of directors thing because he's dressed very nice english and very well spoken so english team i'm like yeah he must be one of the you know mansour oj types uh within the team and couldn't find anything and i'm like wow all right my head is totally spun and yeah however long it took i oh came back for the race and he sat behind uh robin and i and he was like oh hey that was good catching up with you and so and so forth and i'm like oh hey man good to see you and he got up to do something and i just looked over and saw his name on the little uh thing that they taped there with all of our names tom clarkson i'm like ding 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 so yeah when i tell you i'm an idiot it's not like false modesty and it's not just funny self-deprecation yeah like i have a lot of episodes like that on a daily basis just go with me uh, Tom, in his Beyond the Grid Formula One podcast, I love me that one a whole, whole heck a bunch. Uh, little, maybe too much information for you. Uh, I like listening to that in the shower. So, I don't know why. I don't always listen to it in the shower. Uh, listen to music most of the time. But, yeah, um, there you go. I, I, just, I should delete this, but I'll leave it because, hey, I'm stupid. After that... Uh, there was a podcast put out last year by, was it the Miami Herald? Yes. It was a, how many parts? Six parts? Yeah. Called Smoked. Uh, this was about Randy Lanier, my pal Randy Lanier, and his, uh, yes, marijuana smuggling endeavors. So that I enjoyed. I realize that's a year old, but I enjoyed that. Trying to look at what other racing ones here to close for you. Matt Farah's The Smoking Tire. I have that here, which I download. I haven't listened to as many as I wanted to of late. I think the last one was with my pal Alana Schur. She's just, again, badass. Uh, so she was there with Matt, so I uh, enjoyed that. Beyond those, just reading off what's in front of me, uh, Jalen and Jacoby, love those guys sports espn there you go uh mark Marin's wtf podcast listen to that for i don't know 10 ish years maybe uh one that i i gotta imagine you already listened to this one jj it's conan o'brien's uh conan o'brien needs a friend um boy my wife and i started listening to this last year when she was in the hospital and we were crying, laughing at some of the episodes. The, there's a like a three, four part mini feature thing that he did with Dana Carvey. Um, we listened to those over and over again, and they brought us so much joy and laughter at a time where, without getting into things, we really needed it. Uh, yeah, so that would be a big recommendation for you there. Uh Brent Terhune's field trip. I've only listened to his once or twice. Kind of enjoyed it. I probably need less work around me to have a clear head for that. And then of the last couple of things that have added in here, Mr. Gertler, Office Ladies. 
Um, yes, love that recapping or delving into old episodes of the office. And I don't know why I said old episodes as if that's in contrast to new. Uh, I see that apparently I subscribed to mine. Now that's whack. That is actually genuinely whack. And I'm going to unsubscribe my own podcast because there's no reason for me to subscribe to my own. Uh, the last one here. Uh, let's see. No, two. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Uh, apparently, I really wanted to listen to that a while ago and haven't for quite a while, but you might like that one. In the last one, JJ, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of the hippity hop, the rapidy rap music, but the Combat Jack show. Uh, Combat Jack died, unfortunately, I think a little over a year ago. His show, his guests, did this for a long time. Uh, I'm trying to look at some that I have dating back to like 2013. Yeah. If you are a fan of the good old hippity hop, you're a fan of the rap of music, you would be doing yourself a great service by going and finding combat Jack's show. It's actually called the combat Jack show. That is something that, yeah, those I save cause they're so amazing. And I listen to those a lot going to and from airports to hotels uh, when I'm traveling on the road because they're a comfortable thing, especially longer drives. Really like that. Also, notice here that I've subscribed to Crime and Sports Podcast, but I haven't listened to that in a while. So that's kind of sort of what I got for you there. Going to wrap up here pretty quickly. Yeah, we're getting to about an hour 15 or so. So going to take one or two more. And then we're going to say goodbye for this episode, and we'll do a part two here shortly. Going to go to our pal Andy Merrick. This is Marshall for you. Little Al famously said, you just don't know what indie means. Let's talk about a couple things of what indie means to you on a personal level. (laughs) Me personally. uh, As you look back over the years. Well, that's a really kind question to throw at me, Andy. Um, just trying to see what other questions I might have here uh, to get to before I answer that. Uh, Sean Lee asked a question about qualifying attempts and getting in and out of line. Um, sorry, I'm going to skip that one for right now, brother. Not that I don't like the question, just it's going to take me too long to explain it, and my head might not give you the best answer as it is. Um, Michael Mueller, you asked a question about you offer a comment about pole and front row photos and notice uh, whenever it was more than just a driver, uh, everyone was required to wear masks. Uh, think about Sunday and the race winner photos, masks will likely be required. Um, talking about you're all from masks, but very unfortunate that the historical photos of the 500 winner will mostly obscure the emotion of the driver and the team had just achieved a great victory in, a great victory in their career. Then you have a suggestion that they take photos with and without and so on i hear you uh if we're just talking purity uh maintaining a standard of no masks for a hundred and however many years i hear you i don't disagree as a photographer i don't disagree consistency is a great thing i also would say that as a person who loves his history of earth in racing history michael that this is an accurate representation of the times. And just like we look back and see photos, you know, there was a point in time, I'm sure, where 
you know, drivers were asked, well, take off your goggles. Uh, how we would not, Dareth thinketh of taking a photo with you wearing goggles because those are newfangled things. and uh, Or helmets. Take your helmet off. Good Lord. Why would you cover your fine Lord-given hair with a leather helmet? Uh, I'm sure that there are plenty of times throughout history where, hey, this new device or new thing spoils tradition, history, the norm. Take it off. Uh, I love looking back at those and going, oh, wow, look at that thing that they did in this year or this point in time where something different happened and it tells the story. So I hear you, Michael, maybe the idea of doing two sets of photos with and without, maybe that's the thing, but I also want to make sure, hopefully I want to make sure like I have any control over it. I, oh man, I suck today, but sorry. Um, I like the idea of looking back however many years, hopefully long after the Corolla virus is gone and all those things, but this is what this year was. This is how we did the race. This is what it ended up being. No fans and masks and distancing and all kinds of stuff. Uh, this is an accurate snapshot. So get the consistency part, but I would, I would rather lean towards truthiness. Uh, let's get back to Andy's question to close. Cause I wanted this to close. What does it mean to me? Uh, Andy, I would tell you a couple things. The first time I experienced the Indy 500, it was at my grandfather's house, my mother's father, in the city where I was born, San Mateo, California. And house is right next to the freeway, um, pretty loud, you know, the working class area, blue collar area. And we were able to drown out Whatever sounds the freeway uh, would have been, if you know your Bay Area, would have been the interchange, right? Basically, just inside of the interchange between Highway 92 and Highway 101. Um, we're able to drown out whatever sounds of road noise by him turning up the radio. This would have been, I'm guessing, 74, 1975, something in that area, 76 maybe, I don't know. But cranking up the radio so we could listen to the Indy 500. And there may be some of you from San Mateo in that era who recall seeing it on television and are going to tell me that I'm wrong. I just recall as it was presented to me, it was not televised. That would kind of give a pretty interesting snapshot into the time as well, but listening to it on the radio was the only option. And so the first time that I heard it, it was me at four, five, whatever years old, just laying on the carpet, laying on my belly and listening to it with my ear and whatever pressed up against the speaker. And it was just fascinating. I couldn't tell you who was on the radio, couldn't tell you any of that stuff. But the sounds of the engines, the call of the announcers, the theater of the mind, that is what I recall. And so it, it from the outset, Andy, was a mythical thing because... I had not seen it, saw photos of Indy cars and, you know, father was a amateur racer, loved racing. Grandfather was an enthusiast for sure. So I am sure that I saw photos of what I was listening to, to have some sort of mental imagery of it, but it was really just this audio storytelling cheering of the crowds. I have no idea what year it was or who won. 
but it was just such a visceral thing because it all had to happen between my ears and in my mind that I'm glad that it happened that way. Cause I think if I'd just seen it on TV, it probably would have been less special. This felt like it was the race was being put on for an audience of one. And it was so cool and so moving. So as a result, I grew up just loving IndyCar racing, desiring to be a part of IndyCar racing, Andy. And I loved other forms of the sport, Formula One and IMSA and all kinds of things. But Indy and the Indy 500, as a kid from the, you know, again, working class family in the Bay Area, uh, way far away from Indiana, I didn't fully know where, I didn't even, I couldn't have told you where the race was being held when I heard it that first time. But it's something that I dreamt of from the time I was hopefully out of diapers by then, but just dreaming of it, Andy. And so if you look at my high school yearbook, my senior will from Carlmont High School said, look for me at Indy in 10 years, and I made it in nine. Um, That was just a huge part of my dreams. And so getting there for the first time in 1997 with the Earl, the Indy Racing League, uh, our Genoa Racing Thomas Knapp Motorsports entry with Greg Ray. This was our Indy Lights team. This was all of us from our 1996 Indy Lights program going to the IRL because Greg's parents were able to put some money together and put some money behind this, and our team owner, Angelo Farrow, was able to put in a little bit of money and Tom Knapp had some friends and clients who invested a little here where this guy bought a motor and this person did that and already had the transporter already had the shop from again, whole infrastructure was there just needed the car and tires, Firestone engine, Oldsmobile chassis, Delara. It was a used one, lightly used one from AJ Foyt racing and an operating budget. You know, we didn't have much, but uh, got there in 97, and I remember walking out once we had, I guess, driven in for the first time, and myself and Ed Nelson, special Ed Nelson, we walked straight through Gasoline Alley to go out to Pit Lane, and the gates were closed. There was a yellow shirt there. I don't remember the gentleman's name. It took a photo, though, of Ed and the yellow shirt gentleman, and... We just looked out <laughs> because it was the thing of dreams, man. It really was. Ed, who was, I don't know, maybe 15, 10, 15, 20 years older than I at the time. You know, this is something that he had, uh, I don't think he'd been there before. I don't know. Uh, I might be forgetting that part of the story, Andy. But so place I dreamt of since I was like five years old, got to when I was 26, after spending about 10 years or so working on the road to Indy, Atlantics, Indy Lights, Formula 4 2000s, Super Vs, other stuff too, little prototypes, um, is just a dream. So to get there and be there and for us to do well, again, I know this is the IRL era, right? If it was the cart era, uh, I don't know how well we would have done. We had talent. That, that wasn't really a problem. We just didn't have much money. So we would have been out-resourced by a mile 
if it was cart era still there. With the money that we had, we were able to actually do fairly well. And so I got to do five of those, Andy. Five of those as a crew member. First two with Genoa TKM. Uh, third one with LP Neen House Racing with good old greasy old salad bar, LSAO Salazar. Uh, the next year with Team Extreme, one of the worst, which I recently mentioned, uh, but got to work with a good Davey Hamilton, who I love to death, and Ayrton Dari's crazy self. And then the fifth and final was with Sam Schmidt Motorsports in his first year as a team owner with Davey yet again. Actually... Yeah, Davey threw the Indy 500. He got brutally hurt the following race at Texas. But yeah, got to do, well, I shouldn't say got to. Did five, decided towards the end of the 2001 season that was going to be my last. Not just 500, but just working in IndyCar in general. Uh, got to do stuff in cart, which was really cool. So achieved lots of dreams, Andy, and just decided it was time to try something else. And that led me pretty quickly to what I'm doing today. So, you know, what it means to me is a dream that was so, that dream was so deep when it first occurred when I was five-ish years old that, like, it feels like an inexhaustible supply. I remember my 2002 Indy 500 and having a whole pre-race ritual of what I went to go get to eat and what I went to, you know, prepare for watching my first Indy 500, not being there as a crew member. And it just ate me up inside. And so wanted to get back, uh, was back there by 2005 running an Indy lights team or infinity pro series team, I should say. Uh, and just, Oh Yeah just the place. So just a well, Andy, a well that I have been drawing from since I was about five years old. When I say inexhaustible, of course, there've been times where it just rips your heart out. Salazar first driver to crash in 99, a brutal year leading up to it. A brutal month of May. We were slow and he was always mad in the car, just nonstop, everything bad, Great people that I worked with, they were salvations, but just LSAO came back too early from a massive crash and just, anyways, it was the circumstances. But, you know, you go through a month where you just, there's no performance. Every day you're like, oh, well, okay, great. Um, And then you're the first car out. It's just like, just punch me in the face. (laughs) Couldn't you just done that on day one? We, I mean, seriously, we might've just not shown up if you told us this is how it's going to end because it was just crap the whole time. And then you crash by yourself in the short shoot. First car out. We were just looking at each other like, well, frankly, this is a cartoon animal, man. Just hitting us like, all right, we've been hit so many times this month. Maybe, You just took us out of our misery here, Eliseo. So I love the place. Uh, It fills my brain. I am so thankful to have done it on the inside, been a real part of it, qualified in the front row one year in 98 with Greg, Uh, led 18 laps of it then, like legitimate 18 laps of leading, car broke, whatever. But, you know, uh, I'm no different, Andy, than anyone else who loves IndyCar racing and loves and knows the power of the Indy 500. 
it is life. It is a wellspring of everything uh, when it comes to racing and sport and camaraderie. Not seeing friends, not hearing all the crazy stories, not sitting next to Miller and having him curse up a storm and shout and just be himself. All the things that make going to the 500 for the past 10, 12, whatever amount of years in this media role in particular. Yeah, I miss all that immensely. Um, I haven't seen my people since September of last year. So it's really getting into the the danger zone. Sorry, I had to use that stupid thing that gets said on the broadcasts. Uh, Been getting to the danger zone here and not seeing my IndyCar friends and family for what's coming up on almost a year. We're making lots of great progress at home, truly great progress. So I am confident that you will see me back at the racetrack next year. So thanks for that question, Andy. Thanks to all of you who sent in your good stuff. There's going to be a part two. I'm going to say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, as we always do, torontomotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm Marshall Pruitt. It's a little podcast we do with you. You power it and make it possible. I'm very, very thankful to you for that. I'm going to speak to you here shortly with a part two. And we've also got our guest for the Week in IndyCar episode, that being Brian Herta. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of day at Indies here tomorrow. I'm going to speak with Mike Hull to try and get good old Jer Hildebrand on the line Wednesday when I'm recording with Brian. As soon as we're done, I think I then speak with, uh, we're having an all-Swede day at IndyCar with our Chip Ganassi pals Felix Rosenqvist and Marcus Erickson. Not sure who I'm going to have on on Thursday, but uh, since we're going to have a couple of Honda folks, I'll probably try and find some Chevrolet folks for Thursday. And then we got Carb Day and yada, 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 yada. So, hey, I'm going to talk to you in a little bit.